In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we ask you to once again send down your Holy Spirit, especially during this season where we celebrate your resurrection. But we ask you to send down the Holy Spirit to help us to learn more about who we are as being made in the image of God and our fall from your, your love. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before we get started, I have a question to Sure. Ask. About, the, about, I think, the first one that we did. Uh, you said that you can't get up to heaven in, unless you're baptized in confirmation and that stuff. Oh, why do we pray for people then? So, and I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but, but basically, you know, we can't get, you know, Jesus tells us that we cannot be saved unless you believe in him and are, and are baptized. You know, um, and as I, as I said that night, I know that it doesn't necessarily mean God is bound by that, but we are. You know, that's the rules that we have to follow. Um, but that doesn't mean, and it actually does tie into this class tonight, because we're going to talk about the fall the fall of humanity and sin entering into the world. It doesn't mean that if we are baptized, we cannot lose that, because we can. And so, ultimately, our being saved, our entering into heaven is God's grace. It's by Him. And so we pray for the, the person that has died, that God will, we're asking God to give them His, their grace, His grace is basically what we're doing. We're, we're interceding on their behalf. And if they have any punishment, what we call purgatory, we're interceding that that purgation may be lessened. Whatever that purgation is may be lessened. So that's why we pray for the souls who have died. You know, because we want them to go to heaven and we're asking God to do that and to make it as painless as possible maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you pray for someone who's sick, you're, you're praying that God's grace will come upon them and they'll be healed. If you pray for someone that is dealing with a, a, a sorrow, that they'll be comforted by God's and so on. It's, it's the same thing. You're absolutely right. Yep. Is that what you were asking? As grandparents, every once in a while we try and get our grandkids baptized, even though we know that the parents probably won't continue to take them right. to church. Is that still a good thing to do? Because she was kind of making it like, well, now you have set that kid up for failure because he's actually baptized. And Yeah, there's... there's that's a, that's a tough question because we want everybody to be baptized. We want everybody to enter the body of Christ. We want everyone to receive that salvation through the normal means, through you know believing in God and following Him and all that. However, by baptism in the Catholic Church, it puts obligations on both the family and the person baptized that they would not normally have. Um, and this is where we start talking about baptism of desire versus water baptism versus baptism of blood. You know, there are martyrs who 
we invoke as saints who were never baptized. But because they died for Christ before they could be, we know that they were saved because they died for Christ. You know, and that's, that's one way ticket to heaven is to die for, you know, to willingly die for Christ, not to go seek it out. That's another story. But if, you know, if the, the government says deny Christ or die and you die, that's, you know, we, we call that a baptism of blood. Uh, baptism of desire are, is if you were able to do so and you were, not, you know, if you were unable to do so, but you want to be baptized, you know, and the example often is, you know, a tribe in deep, dark Africa that there's no missionary has ever visited this tribe. That's fairly rare now, but they still kind of exist. If a person from that tribe dies, but they followed God to the best of their ability, should they be condemned for that through no fault of their own? You know, and so these are all the, these kind of issues. Now, the, the, the tough part comes in, in our country today where, like for, for a child, I'll even use my own family as an example. My, my nephew, my brother's son, is not baptized, and they've expressed absolutely zero interest of having it happen. Is it better for him to not have him be baptized as a child and wait till he's an adult and maybe I'll have the chance to talk to him as an adult who can seek baptism and who can seek to live the faith. Is that a better option? It's not ideal and it's not what we should be doing. But again, if my brother and his wife brought my nephew to baptism and said, yes, I will we will raise him, we will take the light of faith and raise him as a Christian, and do like so many families do where they renege on that, that actually makes things worse for both the family and the kid. The family, because they stood before God, and yes, God, I swear I will raise this child as a Christian with their fingers crossed that they really won't. And then for the kid, of course, because now he has the obligation to fulfill the commandments and so on. So it, it's... It's a tough question, and it's a question we're facing more and more right now because we have a lot of families that are in the same situation of what you're talking about, of what you know, my family is, going, is dealing with as well. Um, how do we handle that? There, it's one of those, unfortunately, there really isn't a good answer because of the situation we're put in, except prayer, first of all, prayer for change of heart. Um, so I kind of answer your, your question. Mm -hmm. Or say they lived an hour and never got baptized. And that's they have not sinned yet. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight is a lot of that issue. What do you do with aborted children? What do you do with miscarries? What do you do with stillborns? What do you do with children that die for whatever reason before they can be baptized? You know, and again, you know, that, that exact example. They're at the hospital, something happens right after the child is born. You know, they stop breathing or their heart stops or they just, you know, whatever reason is, they're, they're not, they're clearly not going to live and you can't get them baptized in time. What do we do about that? So 
that's some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, actually. So it's a good, good, uh, that's part of, because we're going to talk about original sin and what that means. So, but let's get jumping into this and we can get more questions after, obviously, too. But let's get jumped into this so we can get, get through it. Now, the, what we're talking about today is man and the fall. When we use the word man, you, you've noticed the catechism uses the word man a lot. And this is clearly, the catechism is using the universal sense of the word man, as in all of humanity. This is not talking specifically about males. And part of the reason for that is, until recently, it was well understood in English that the word man actually first and foremost meant all of humanity before it did the male of the species. It's in recent years with, with better understanding of women's place in the world and in relationship to men and all these things that women you know, have fought for that we don't use the word man as all of humanity anymore. We generally use the term human for that instead, humanity. Um, but the Catechism still uses man also because Remember, it was not originally written in English. It was first written in French and then later written in Latin. And the Latinate languages, the languages that came from Latin, like Italian, uh, French, Spanish, a couple other of these languages that came from Latin language, and many other languages throughout the world, not just European languages, every word is either male or female or neutral. Gender means something in other languages. It really doesn't in English as much, the, the grammatical sense of gender. And so the word for humanity is male. And again, that doesn't mean that they're denying the female side of humanity. It's just that word is male. Uh, I recently heard someone who was a native Spanish speaker saying, in Spanish, Everything has a gender. The doorknob has a gender. Wisdom has a gender. The light bulbs have genders. Because the words that they use have a gender. You know, wisdom in many languages is feminine. And that's why in the scriptures you see the book of wisdom. It talks about wisdom as a she, even though that, that person of wisdom is talking about the Holy Spirit. You know, so... And I know there are plenty of women who would say, well, of course wisdom is, is feminine because men don't have wisdom. <laughs> That's not the case. It's not the case. But, you know, there are, there are other words, you know. I, I, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones that, you know. And some of them are traits that tend to fit male or female. But by and large, the, every word has gender in other languages than English. English, we don't do so much of that unless we are talking about something like a pronoun about someone or, you know, an aspect of someone, you know, then we, we start to do more of that. So I just, I want to make that clear because I know that's, that's one of the complaints against the, against the catechism, even from when it first came out, that it used the word man. And that's just because, again, that, that for a long time, that was the universal word of the species. And it was, you know, many languages, male and female, every word has a gender. Now, when we talk about Man, one of the first things we always talk about is that we are made in the image of God, the image and likeness of God. 
And of course, you know, as, as a kid when I heard this, I thought, oh, we look like God. You know, I think every kid kind of goes through that at some point where you say, oh, we look like God. God looks like us. And that's not the case. You know, when we talk about somebody looking like God and God looking like us, we're putting physical attributes on God. You know, our appearance, our physical appearance is a physical attribute of us. It's not a spiritual attribute. Well, God is spiritual. He is not physical. So he doesn't have appearance the way we do. You know, appearance is an attribute of the physical universe. But what it does mean by being in the image in, of God is that we can share in the love of God. That only we human, human beings can share in the love of God in the way that he created us to do. Animals cannot. Plants cannot. And we are in the image of God because he wanted us to share in that love. He created us to share in that love and willed us into existence for our sake. He created us for our sake. And everything else was created for us. And so, because we are in the image of God and because we were created for our sake, this is where we talk about the idea of the dignity of the human person. We talk about you know, human beings having a dignity that no other creature does. Animals do not have a dignity that we do. Plants do not have a dignity that we do. Rocks and buildings and air does not have a dignity that we do. We are set apart from all of other of all the rest of creation. And so this dignity comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God, made to share in his love. And part of that is that we are able to know ourselves, we are able to control ourselves, and we are able to give of ourselves. So we're able to know ourselves, we're able to have self-knowledge. So I use that, that joke about, you know, a dog doesn't sit, look at the stars, and where did I come from, and how did I get here? No, it's like, do I smell food? You know, dogs do not have a self-awareness we do. And if you want proof of that, put a dog in front of a mirror and see what they do. They bark at themselves. They think it's another dog across that mirror. We look at a mirror and we know that's ourselves. Dogs think, oh, there's another dog. I'm going to attack it. <laughs> Wait, it's attacking me too, you know, it's, which is fun to watch, but they don't have that awareness. We're also able to control ourselves. We can control our, our emotions, our desires. You know, animals can learn some of that, but not much. You know, they, they, they still act very much on instinct. We, we have some instincts that we act on, but we can control that. And the same with our emotions and so on. And then, of course, we're able to give of ourselves. We are able to not look at ourselves only, but look at the needs of others, the desires of others, to look at what God wills of us and to give of ourselves for that. So all this is part of being made in the image of God is having this, this self-awareness, self-control, and self-giving. And as I said, all of creation was made for us. When God created the heavens of the earth, we were the pinnacle. We were the top. We were the last things he created, and he gave us everything. And we were made to love God. Those of you who remember the Baltimore Catechism, one of the questions asked, why did God make you? 
and He made me to know Him, to love Him, and to serve Him in this world, and to be happy with Him forever in heaven. And people who went through the Baltimore Catechism can still quote that to this day. You know, it's, but it's why God made us. To know Him, to love Him, to serve Him this life, and to spend eternity with Him in heaven. But we were not created to be in isolation with God. We were created for unity. Unity with Him and unity with each other. You know, God didn't create the universe for me or Gene or anybody else. He made the universe for us, for each other. And so we were created to be in unity with each other. And that's why we talk about being adopted brothers and sisters. God adopted us as his children. And so we are brothers and sisters. We should have that relationship with each other as brothers and sisters. And yes, like brothers, like earthly, biological brothers and sisters, we will fight. We will not like each other. We will argue with each other. But we are also made to love each other. And when we do fight and argue, we should also make up and be, once again, seek unity with each other. And this unity is a, it's, it's an ongoing theme with God. God himself is unity. We talked about that, I think it was last week, talking about the Trinity as unity, three persons, one God, united as love. Well, we are united as human beings as brothers and six sisters of God, or of, of brothers and sisters of each other and children of God, but we are also a unity as individuals. Each of us as individuals are unities of body and soul. So our bodies and our souls are united, physical and spiritual. So our flesh, our earthly existence, and our spiritual existence, our souls, are united as one. You know, of course, again, we talk about the soul is this spiritual aspect of our life. That's what we, we talk about when we, we talk about how we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. When confirmation, here tomorrow when we have confirmation, the kids will be sealed by the Holy Spirit. It is the soul that is sealed by that oil being put on their forehead. That soul is created to be immortal. It is from the moment it is created at our conception, it is created to be immortal from that point to the end of eternity, which there is no such thing as the end of eternity. <coughs> so we, we are created to be immortal. Our souls are created to be immortal. And they're not created by our parents. They're created by God. God creates the soul at the moment of conception. And unifies it with our newly developing body. The body is the physical aspect that is animated by the soul. And yes, that does come from our parents at the moment of conception. Our body ultimately started out from our parents. They shared in God's act of creation by creating the body that God then united the soul to. And without the body and the soul united, the human person is not whole. We are made by God to be a union of body 
and soul. And both are necessary for life. You must have both body and soul to be alive. Because what do we call it when you separate the body and the soul? Death. Death is that separation of the body and the soul. The earthly flesh, the earthly existence dies. And the eternal existence, the soul, goes on to God. Now, this separation of body and soul is not permanent. You know, we bury the body and the body never does anything again. No. God resurrects the body. God recreates our bodies at the final judgment. When we are standing before our Lord in the final judgment, we will be standing before him once again reunited body and soul. And we will spend eternity body and soul. And it will be the recreated versions of these bodies that we have now. Now the question comes up, well, what are we going to look like? What are we going to look like when our bodies and souls are reunited? Are we going to look like we did when we died, where if we died at 12 years old, we'll be 12 years old for eternity? If we died at 90, we'll be 90 for all eternity? I don't believe so. I, this, is, this is where I'm going to say my personal opinion is. You won't find this in the catechism, though I think I'm on good ground. That there will be, our bodies will be the most perfect version of who we are in our lives. Or could be, again, if someone dies before that. Like, I often say that physically, emotionally, the 30s, my 30s were probably the best time of my life. I was in the best health. You know, I just, I, I felt my body was in its best shape at that moment. Other people might be earlier, other people might be later. It'll be whatever your perfection of your body was. Other people have speculated is we would all be at 33 because that was the age our Lord died at 33. Now again, for me, that's a good thing because my body was feeling pretty good about the age of 33. I wasn't 100 pounds overweight at the age of 33, so I can handle that. But either way, it's our bodies will be perfected. We will not look like we do here on earth. I mean, that part is clear. But it will be our bodies. And we know that because our Lord, when he rose from the dead, he came, as we saw in the gospel today, he came to the apostles, appeared to the disciples, body and soul. But it was a glorified body that was not bound by things like locked doors. He could just pass through a wall. He could just appear in a room. But it was his physical body. He even showed Thomas. I will not believe unless I touch his hands and put hands and feet and put my hand in his side. And our Lord says, okay, Thomas, here you go. Put your hands here. It was his body. He didn't have to show up with his nail marks, but he did. Um, so either way, we will spend eternity, body, and soul. Now, one thing that Catechism talks about is the heart. And when we talk about the heart spiritually, you know, we talk about, you know, I believe something to the depth of my heart. Or my heart is moved by this thing that happened. We're obviously not talking about the physical organ. We're not talking about the, the biological pump 
that's sitting in our chest, making sure that our blood flows through our body. And if it stops pumping, that blood doesn't flow anymore and we die. That's not what we're talking about. Obviously, we're talking about, as the Catechism quotes in paragraph 368, the depths of one's being where the person decides for or against God. So we're ta- when we talk about we believe something in the depth of our heart, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about to the depth of our being, to the core of our being, to that part of our being that we never really show because we can't. It's the most intimate, vital part of our lives. So, And this is the part, like it says, where we decide for or against God. Now one thing we need to talk about when we talk about the human person, when we talk about man, is what does it mean to be male and female? You know, the, the, the Bible tells us that God created us male and female. And this is probably going to be the most controversial section of the, of the catechism that we've approached so far. Because, of course, we live in an age where these concepts of man and woman, male and female, are being twisted and changed. They don't mean now for many people what they would have 20, 30, 40 years ago. They're being changed. First thing to to point out is men and women were created with equal dignity. Unfortunately, a common distortion in the history of the church, not even just the church, the history of the world, is that one sex or the other would be seen as inferior. You know, that for much of European culture, women would be seen as inferior to men. And of course, that's a violation of how God created us. Men and women were created with equal dignity. We both, both men and women, share in the dignity of the human person equally. But equal does not mean that men and women are exactly the same. There are differences between men in women. And you see that by and large by the interests of most men versus the interests of most women. You see that by and large in, obviously, the biology of men and women. There's very clear differences between the biology of men and women. And it's not just the sexual organs I'm talking about. Because of what goes on inside of our bodies, how men and women react to things like drugs is very different. There are certain drugs that are actually more toxic to men than women and certain drugs that are more toxic to women than men. You know, and that is a very important part of the biology. And so you know, with, with, when they're doing drug trials and so on, That's a very important aspect of those trials is getting so much of one sex or the other so that they can know how the drug interacts with, again, the majority, the vast majority of population. There's always outliers in a lot of this when you're talking about biology especially. But men and women are not the same, but they are to be equal and they should be treated with the same dignity and respect while recognizing the differences between them. And those differences, contrary to our culture today, are actually very important because there is a unity between man 
in woman. If you've ever heard the phrase complementarity, this is how men and women complement each other. And again, this isn't just talking about the physical aspect. This is talking about emotional aspect, psychological aspect, spiritual aspect. Women, by and large, are more spiritually attuned than men. And if you want proof of that, look at the fact that there are more women in this room than men. That's kind of a marker, because that's very much whenever you have an event at the church, whether it's prayer, study, whatever it might be, it's usually the women who step up more than the men. And that means that part of the role of women in this complementarity is to push the men, get them, get them going spiritually. Again, not all men, but you know, many don't have a spiritual mindset that women do. So, I mean, when, when men and women, when a man and a woman who are married are acting with this complementarity of the sexes, they are actually greater than the sum of their parts. This is literally one of those cases where that plays. The gifts of the men and the gifts of the woman are enhanced and improved through the two working together. They are greater than the sum of their parts. Men and women are called to help each other. They are called to help each other. That's part of this complementarity. And this is why the church is so insistent that marriage is only between one man and one woman. See, and this is part of the controversy. We have a culture that says, no, it's not. The church still says, and we'll always say, yes, it is. Part of your marriage vows, those of you who are married, is that you are going to help your spouse get to heaven as your spouse is to help you get to heaven. That is part of what you promised when you got married. Part of that love that you're to have with each other. And of course, also marriage is to be open to the creation of children, to participate in God's creation in bringing new human life to existence. That doesn't mean that you know, a person can't get married if they can't have children. You know, if a woman can't have children and a man is infertile, that doesn't mean they can't get married. There just needs to be that openness to it. They can't willingly say, no, I'm going to go under the surgery that prevents this and then get married. That can actually be an impediment to marriage if they willingly choose and say, no, I will not be open to children in my marriage. If a person said that to a priest, the priest would literally have to say, okay, time out. We need to have a very long discussion about this. And if you don't change your mind, that means it's off. I mean, it's that simple. Um, but again, this is, this is something that is very controversial in our world today, not just because of the issues of gay marriage, marriage between two men or two women, or polygamy, or all these other things that are starting to crop up in, in popular, popular opinion, um, but also because of the issue of biological male versus gender. You know, the gender issues that people are looking at, where they can say, well, I was born, or, or they, they always say, assigned male at birth is the phrase that they will use. I was assigned male at birth. 
but I really think I should be a woman. I feel I am a woman. I believe that I am a woman trapped in a man's body or whatever phrase they happen to use. I mean, there's many different phrases that they use, but they all basically say the same thing. Assigning them male at birth was wrong. I should be able to, through surgeries, through medical inter other medical interventions, become a woman. Or even just say without those, that medical intervention that I am now a woman. And again, this is very controversial in the, in the world today and in the church today because the church is saying, no, your biology matters. What you think, what you desire, what you feel is secondary to Biology. There is no such thing as assigned gender at birth. There is, this is your sex. If you were born as a male with male biology, you're a male. If you were born as a female with female biology, you're a female. There is nothing you can do to change that. You can undergo as many surgeries as you want. You can grow your hair or cut your hair. You can do whatever you want to your body. You are still what you were at birth. And again, that, that's very, very controversial today because even just saying this in public gets you ridiculed. How dare you? You hate these people. No, actually, we say the opposite. We say telling them that they can do this is lying to them and hating them. In, you know, in keeping them in that mindset is what really make, hates them. So, I mean, that's... A very short take on a, a very difficult subject in our world today, but it's, it's important to realize we were made male, we were made female, and the two work together. Male and female, we work together. Because ultimately, our goal is to get to heaven. But we were not originally created to live in this earth and then have to go to heaven. We were originally created to be in paradise, male and female, to be united as humanity in paradise. You know, we see this with Adam and Eve. You know, a lot of this is going back to those first three chapters of Genesis, where we see the creation of the world, and then we see Adam and Eve in the garden. And as I said, was there a literal Adam and Eve in a garden somewhere in the Middle East? No. But was there a first humanity? Absolutely. And that's who was represented by Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve shared in a friendship with God that we cannot experience in this world now. They had a unity with him. They, had, they walked with him. I mean, that, that's what the Bible says, is they walked with God through the garden. And that's what it's talking about, is that they were in harmony with him in a way we cannot. They were in harmony with creation. They did not fear anything in the world. There was nothing in the world that they had to fear. They did not fear the weather. They did not fear wild animals. Nothing. There was, there was a harmony with creation that we have, cannot experience in this life. Because there are dangers in this world. Walk outside at 40 below, dressed like this with short sleeve shirt, and stay out there for a half an hour and see if, whether or not you should fear creation you ain't going to make it, you know. They did not have to worry about that. They were in what, what the Catechism calls a state of holiness and original justice. Original holiness and original justice. They had a harmony with God because they were living in His divine life. They were sharing 
in his divine life. And because of that, they would not suffer and they would not die. That was the original plan of God for all of us, is that we would share in that. And they also had what, the, again, the Catechism calls original justice. And what this original justice is, this harmony, this harmony between each other and this harmony with creation. This is, again, what we were made for, was to be in harmony with creation and to be harmony with each other. And they had a mastery of themselves that we do not understand either. Because they, they were not impaired by things like the pleasures of the senses. Yes, they experienced pleasure. They experienced the senses as we do. But they were not hampered by them. We can become so caught up in our senses that it, we live differently. And I'm going to talk about that here in a little bit. Our senses can trick us. Our senses can impair us. They were not impaired by covetousness for earthly goods. They were not materialist. They did not have to have stuff. As I'm surrounded by all the stuff I use to record this, but still, you know, they did not, they were not, they did not have to have possessions. They had no need of it. And then they were unimpaired by this is a phrase the Catechism uses that I wanted to quote. They're unimpaired by self-assertion contrary to the dictates of reason. That's a fancy way of saying they could not get their minds stuck on something that was erroneous. So sometimes we can do that where we can get an idea stuck in our head and you can't convince us of nothing to get rid of that idea. That's what it's talking about, is where we can be so certain about something. You know, it's kind of a, kind of a joke, and I really think it is kind of an internet joke anymore, but the idea of people who are flat earthers. There is actually flat earth society on the internet, on Facebook. And I think it's more of a joke. I think, I think it's more of a, you know, troll. But you cannot convince them of anything that the world is not flat, that it is a sphere, more or less. And there is nothing you can do to get that idea out of their head. That's what I'm talking about. We see it in politics, especially now, where it's, you know, people have their ideas and everything. What's interesting with Adam and Eve is you know, they were given the garden to care for. And they did the work in the garden. But work was not viewed, as so many of us do, as a burden. You know, for many of us, the jobs that we do or have done or will do is because we want to get paid so we can have a roof over our heads, we can have clothing, we can have food, we can have our needs met, maybe even some of the, our desires, our likes, our wants. But the, we don't do the work in, in itself for its fulfillment. We do it so that we get paid. And Adam and Eve, they worked because they were participating with God in perfecting creation. Their work in the garden was making the garden more perfect for God. Ideally, that's how we should be working as well, for the glory of God, to for do our part in creation, in making the world better. But let's be honest, you know, I've, I've had jobs too where you did them because it brought you money. You know, and that's all, that's all it was about. 
But work was not a burden. It was a joy for them. It was a part of being in harmony with God. But then we have the fall. The fall of Adam and Eve. The original fall. And this is where this question, and we've touched on it a couple of times as, as we've done this class, where does evil come from? Why is there evil in the world? Now, we know that evil exists. We know that sin exists. And if you want proof of that, just look at the world. Look at how people treat each other. Look at the Ukraine. Look at other war, plate, war zones that have happened throughout history. Look at the crimes that people commit that hurt others and so on. Evil exists. Sin exists, whether it is something horrific like a war, a world war especially, or you know, genocide like the Rwandan genocide in the 80s and so on, or the small sins that we do, the little where we put people down, where we gossip about people, where we lie to people, we cheat people, and so on. That exists in our lives. We were meant to be in uni unity with God, where none of this would happen. But we reject that relationship with him. And that is what sin is. Sin is a turning away from God and his will for our lives, his commandments. Sin is putting ourselves in opposition to him. We're opposing him. We're turning away from him. The interesting thing is, by our human nature, we tend to dismiss the effect of sin. You know, we tend to think of sin as a de developmental flaw, a psychological weakness, a mistake, or the necess necessary consequence of an inadequate social structure, and so on. This is from the Catechism 387. And I think that list is so accurate. You know, we, we look at it as like, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just, you know, you get, you get someone who's unnecessarily aggressive or brusque or crude. Oh, that's just who they are. That's just who that person is. You know, how many times do you hear that where, oh, you know, this person, oh, they're always putting people out. Oh, that's just, that's just who they are. They're, they're a good person at heart, you know, things like that. Or we talk about, you know, social sins. We talk about, you know, um, societal issues that oh this is this is all society it's, it's not sin per se it's problems in society and so on we want to dismiss sin but the problem is god has revealed to us how deep the problem of sin goes sin goes we talk about the heart being you know that that the depth of us where we choose war against god sin goes that deep it goes all the way down to the core of our being and we need to recognize that to sin to commit an act of sin is to abuse the freedom that god has given us god has given us the freedom the choice to love him and one another or to reject him in one another. Sin is that act of rejection of God, that act of rejection of another. People talk about, you know, oh, there's private sin. If you do this sin and no one sees it, let's say you cheat on your taxes and you get away with it, 
No one's hurt by that, are they? The IRS collects enough money. The government doesn't need more of my money. I need it. No one's going to care. It's a private sin. But is it? Every sin affects each other. You've got to remember, we are meant to be united. God created us to be united as brothers and sisters. And that those sins, even those little sins that no one sees, they affect others. You know, a common one today is issues of things like pornography. Oh, it doesn't hurt anyone. I mean, after all, the people filming it are doing it willingly. And those who are watching it, they're doing it in private. But does it? I, you know, again, we talked about male versus female, you know, men and women, how we're different. I know for men, pornography changes how men look at women in the real world. They might not say something, but they're looking and they're thinking about that other person. They're viewing that other person, whether it is the person on the video that may or may not have done it willingly. That's a whole other argument against pornography. It's very abusive towards the women. But they also view the women around them as objects for their pleasure. Both are viewed as objects, not other person with the dignity of the human person given to them by God. That is not a secret sin that does not affect each other. All sin affects all of us. All sin affects all of us. So that's why we, we might talk about uh, you know, the sins of the world. I'll talk about that here in a little bit, what that means. But to truly understand sin, we must understand it in the light of Christ. This is talking about, you know, God has revealed how deep sins goes. Well, to truly understand it, we must understand it in the light of Christ. Original sin is like the opposite side of a coin from the gospel. We fell, so it was necessary for our Lord to come into the world and die for our sins. Without the original fall of Adam and Eve, we would not have the redemption that Christ brought to us through his cross, through his death and resurrection. Interestingly and completely a coincidence, this is another one of these cases where God has given us a coincidence, just Saturday night at the Easter Vigil, I chanted what is called the Exultant. It is a beautiful, lengthy hymn that the priest or deacon chants at the beginning of the Easter Vigil. And part of that Exultant, of what I chanted, says... O truly necessary sin of Adam, destroyed completely by the death of Christ. O happy fault that earned so great, so glorious a Redeemer. That original sin led to the Redeemer. That fault of Adam, that fall of Adam, brought the death of Christ and was destroyed by the death of Christ. So the two are, like I said, they're opposite sides of the coin. Without the fall, we wouldn't have needed our Lord to come. Now again, I, I mentioned it briefly, but this original fall did happen. There was an original fall by humanity from God. When that happened, how did that happen? We don't know. The first three chapters of Genesis are an allegory. 
They are not a literal historical text. But they show a truth that humanity did have this original turning away from God. And all of us now, all of humanity, is now marked by the repercussions of that fall. Now, it's interesting, though, that we are marked by that fall, and that is where evil has entered into the world is through that fall. But we are not the only created beings that fell. The angels also fell. You know, we talk about the fallen angels, the demons, Satan and the demons, and his, you know, that we ask St. Michael to defend us from. They fell. They were originally created good. They were originally created to be these angels, these servants, these messengers, as the other angels are. But they chose evil. They chose to turn away from God. And they rejected him out of envy. They used their free choice to reject God out of envy because they were given knowledge that one day us human beings would be higher than the angels. St. Paul says that you know, one day we will judge the angels. We will be higher than the angels. And that the second person of the Trinity would become one of us so that that might happen. And Satan and the fallen angels said, paraphrasing, there's no way I'm serving these apes. Paraphrasing. They rejected. They said they will not serve. Will not serve God. Will not serve us. And so they fell. Now the one thing to recognize is we human beings are very unique in that we have the ability to repent from our sins. Only us human beings here on earth can repent from our sins. When we die, we no longer can repent. Once we've been separated body and soul, we can no longer repent. That we're, we're at that, that's it. We're done. Our life is for that purpose. The angels cannot repent. Once they made their choice, they were stuck with that. So those angels who fell, they're stuck. There's no redemption for them. There's no forgiveness for them. They can't turn back. So it's important to recognize that these angels do exist. Satan is real. The devil is real and hates us. Satan hates us and hates God so much that he tried and continues to try to destroy humanity. That's why humanity fell in the first place. Again, that's, we look at the allegory of Genesis chapter 3 of the serpent coming into the garden. That was Satan tempting humanity, and humanity fell. He hated us so much, he even tried to keep Jesus from doing his mission. You know, think of the, the, the three temptations. And then again at the cross. He hates us so much, he wanted to keep our Lord from that. 
And that's where I, I, I know I mentioned in one of the homilies over the Triduum, is I love that scene in the Passion of the Christ where our Lord dies on the cross, and at that moment, Satan realized he lost. You know, he's sitting in this wasteland screaming because he's lost. He tried to keep our Lord from his mission and failed. You know, and it, it figuratively killed him. Obviously, as a spiritual being, he is going to live, exist for all eternity. Now, Satan is as powerful a spiritual being as angels. In fact, he was the top of the ladder of the angels. He was the best angel, and that was part of his pride. That was part of his envy. He was the greatest of the angels. But he still has limits. The angels are still limited as created beings. They're still much more powerful than we are, obviously, spiritually. But they have limits. The fallen angels can only work in the world by God allowing it to happen. Only by God allowing it to happen can they infect, infect the world. Affect and infect. I think those are actually both good words for it. You know, God permits it. You know, even as he hates God and hates the kingdom of heaven, God permits it. And this is where, again, we come back to that question of evil, of why does God permit it? And that, that answer that, that answers it, but not in a way that we like, that evil is only permitted for the greater God, good that God works. Evil was allowed to enter into the world so that the greatest good of all could happen, the, the sacrifice and resurrection of our Lord. God allows the devil to work in the world for the greater good that he can bring of it. So this, you know, as Satan caused the fall, this is where original sin came into the world. You know, again, we talk about that we are called to be friends with God, to be united with him, to share in his love, but it is a free choice that we have, that we choose to love God. God does not force us. Forced love is not love. We call it, if it's the physical love, we call it rape. You know, forced love is not really love. We have to choose that. And we must recognize that with that choice comes limits, that we are limited and need to trust our Creator that we exist, that through whom we exist. Without God, we would not exist. And so we must trust in Him by sharing in His love. Well, the first sin was disobedience and lack of trust. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. He told them, there's one tree, don't eat of that fruit. Whether it was an apple or a pear or a banana or whatever it was, they ate of it. They disobeyed. They did not trust God. They did not trust that God wanted what was best for them by giving them the world, giving them the garden, giving them this harmony that they had. And since then, all sins follow the same pattern. All of our sins follow the same pattern of disobedience of God and lack of trust with Him. Everything we commit, when we turn away from Him, it's because we're disobeying Him and we don't trust Him. And so we put ourselves before God and choose what we want over His good for our lives. And that is what original sin was, and that's what it continues. Sin continues to be. 
Well, this original sin led to the loss of that original holiness and original justice that Adam and Eve had. Adam and Eve were sharing in divine life. Well, now death has entered into the world. We were not meant to die, but now we do since Adam and Eve. We had harmony with each other and we had harmony with creation, but now we don't. You know, and it even goes down to our harmony between our body and our soul. You know, our bodies, our souls are united, but there's a disharmony there now where the desires of the flesh are not always linked to the desires of the soul. The two aren't have a disharmony. And that's why, as St. Paul says, I do not always do that which I will, will, and I do not always will that which I must. You know, that he knows he needs to do this, but he doesn't do it. That's the definition. That's sin. That's what sin looks like. And then we also have disharmony between man and women. You know, we think of, again, the inequality that, that creeps up throughout human history between men and women. One is more equal than others, to use the words of George Orwell in Animal, Animal Farm. You know, and, of course, lust is very much a disharmony between men and women. And then finally, harmony with creation. As I made that analogy of walking out in a t-shirt and jeans on a, you know, below zero, 40 below day and tell me that we have harmony with creation. Obviously we don't. You know, there are things in creation that do hurt us, that do, that can kill us. You know, and, and we don't have that harmony anymore. And from the point of original sin, this disharmony led to, to filling sin throughout the history of humanity. Sin now fills the story of humanity from beginning to end here on earth. You know, we see you know, Cain's murder of Abel is the first individual act of sin. We see the history of, Israelite, of the Israelites being unfaithful to God. God gave them their, his law. He talked to at least Moses in person and they kept turning away from him throughout their history. Even among Christians, Sin affects us, fills our lives. Because the consequences of original sin fall on each and every one of us. As St. Paul wrote in the, uh, his letter to the Romans, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Because of the fall of Adam and Eve, all of us have fallen into sin. And we all commit acts of sin. But the opposite is also true. And he, he continues with this paraphrasing that by the actions of one man, Christ on the cross, we can be saved. We have been, you know, salvation is now open to us. Sin no longer needs to have that effect on our lives. You know, the, the desire that we have to, to commit sins, individual acts of sin, of sin, individual sinful acts, comes from original sin. Original sin is passed down from generation to generation to generation through humanity. This is why we baptize infants and why we should do it as quickly as possible because they may not have committed an act. You, know, you talked about before about you know, a child that you know, died a minute or an hour after they were born. That child did not commit a sinful act, but that child is still affected by original sin, by this original sin 
this original separation from God that affects all of us. This is the, I guess you can call it irony of the unity of humanity, is that we are united as a humanity. And so that is why we all share an original sin. It's, it kind of passes through our unity like a virus, like a, uh, a stain that spreads through humanity. We are united. You know, we were made to share in that original justice, that original holiness, but that was wiped out by original sin. Now, one thing to kind of mention is we're, we're kind of wrapping up here, but, you know, this idea of original sin versus personal sin. This is a very clear distinction we need to make. Original sin is, as the Catechism uses the word, contracted state of separation from God. This is a separation from God that goes from generation to generation to generation. We are created with it. We are born with it. We do nothing to, to merit it, but it is a part of our lives. We contract it through our, through, through our families. Personal sin is our personal choice while we are here on earth for or against God. It is that personal choice to reject God or to accept him. Because we have that freedom to choose for him or against him. But this freedom that we have is tainted by the evil that has entered into the world. It is tainted by the works of the devil in the world. It is tainted by original sin. And so as the Catechism says in number 407, ignorance of the fact that man has a wounded nature inclined to evil gives rise to serious errors in the areas of education, politics, social action, and morals. So many of those things I talked about earlier that they're controversial in our world today. They're controversial in our world today because of original sin, because of the recognition of, or the lack of recognition of evil in our world, in that these moral ideas that people think are good are actually morally evil, morally wrong. But they can't see that. Father, can I ask a question? Sure. Is that where a neutral fertilization would fall in? Yes. Yes, it would. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's one of many things where I know, you know, I know people who say, well, but what's morally wrong with that? I mean, the, the, the child still is gestated in the mother's womb and is born of the mother and everything. And a lot of times it is, you know, of course, the promise was for like people who they couldn't conceive on their own, but they could conceive in, in the test tube and then insert it into the mother, you know, inject it into the mother or however. Um, but of course, now that's when you've got people who are just having designer babies, basically. You know, and there's, there's other cases. There's a case recently of a, a certain uh, commentator on the internet who is in a gay marriage, and they have two uh, surrogate mothers who are giving them two children, these two gay men. So things like that. So, I mean, there's one way you can see that that evil has kind of perverted something that could be good. So yeah, in vitro fertilization definitely fits in here. And so, but it, we just need to recognize, as I said before, 
Original sin affects the whole world, but so does personal sin. This is why when we talk about the sin of the world, you know, John, John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 129, the sin of the world, or in the uh, Divine Mercy Chaplet where we, you know, we pray for our, you know, for our sins and the sins of the whole world. All sin affects each other. And we are called as Christians to constantly battle against sin, to constantly fight against the forces of sin. And I like the way the Catechism uses very military battle terminology. It must be a fight. It must be a battle against sin. It can't, to resist sin is, is difficult. But we do so through God's grace. Um, he wants us to overcome sin. He did not abandon us. Even when Adam and Eve fell, he did not abandon humanity, but promised that we would have a Savior. And not just did he promise he would have a Savior, he then protected the Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, our Lord, one of the titles you'll hear for our Lord is the New Adam. The New Adam of the New Covenant. Our Lady is the New Eve of the New Covenant. The New Mother of the New Covenant. And she was protected both from original sin and from personal sin. This is what we mean when we talk about her being immaculately conceived. She was conceived without original sin being passed down to her, and she did not commit sin in her life. She did not choose against God in, his, in her life. She was able to, before our Lord was even born, share in his victory over sin. From the very first moment of her existence, she shared in the cross. So, she is our hope that we can one day no longer be affected by sin. And that his grace is greater than sin. And that's all I have. So, any questions off of this? Can we touch on this again next week? Or the following week? <laughs> It's a lot of stuff, isn't it? Especially that last part. I mean, anything in particular? Or? Uh, I just have a hard time wrapping my head around this. Where I got the baby thing stuck in my head. Right. Um, with the sin, with sin, is this sin by propagation to all mankind that is by the transmission of human nature deprived of original holiness and justice. Mm -hmm. Then human nature is deprived of original holiness and justice. Yep. And that where does the baby fit in there? He's got the potential to sin, so he's... No, no, he shares in human nature. We all shares in human... To say we share in human nature is to say we are... You know, as human beings, we have these things we share, you know, that we that make up being human. You know, one of those is being made in the image and likeness of God, but one of those is original sin. To be human means to be affected by original sin. That's one of those things you can def definitively say. And so by whether we are without a thought, without a feeling. Yep. Because we are not born into that original holiness, that original justice. We are not born into the Garden of Eden. In the image and likeness of God. But we are born into the image and likeness of God. That's different. That is a different thing. 
So, because the image and likeness of God is that we are meant, we were made to love God. The problem with that is we have original sin that keeps us from doing that. We have sin that keeps us from doing that. Exactly. All sin keeps us from doing that. Both original and personal. You've got to separate original sin from personal sin. That's that distinction I make at that end, that original sin is we are not born into that perfected world, that perfected relationship with God that we were supposed to. Even if a baby is, you know, conceived by two baptized Christians who are not themselves affected by sin because, you know, they've confessed their sins or, how, you know, whatever. You know, we can talk, we'll talk about that later. But even if they, at the moment of conception, are not separated from God due to sin, they still have that effect in their lives. They still have that temptation and desire to sin. That is part of the separation from God due to original sin. The child that is born is completely separated from God because, again, we are not born into a world that is in that original holiness, original justice that does not exist in our world today and has not since Adam and Eve. This is original sin, is that loss of that. And so it isn't something the baby did. It's something that, that is part of humanity. It is, and that's why our Lord came, is because it wasn't a choice that other people made. You know, Moses fell into sin. King David really fell into sin. You know, things like that. But our Lord didn't come because of those acts of sin of his predecessors. He came because of humanity as a whole being completely separated from God. And came so that when we die and go into the final judgment, if we are following our Lord, you know, if we are saved by our Lord, we will enter into eternal life. So while we are here on earth, we are still affected by original sin. We are just not as cut off as we once were. Kind of clear? I mean, it's, it's, it's an issue people have argued about. Well, here's the thing. It's an issue people have argued about since the beginning you know, of really everything. Um, you, you may have heard the word uh, limbo. And for a long, long time, that was considered the explanation of what happens to infants if they die without baptism. What happens to, you know, yeah, just infants, to those who are not old enough to choose. So infants, young children, and so on. And limbo was not heaven. It wasn't hell either. It was like right on the edge of hell. But it was a place of earthly perfect happiness. So imagine you the happiest, the most joyful day of your life. And that was their eternity. It was a day of just perfect earthly happiness. Not the fullness of joy that we are called to have in heaven, that we are going to have with God when we are united in his love in heaven. So that's how, for much of the history of the church, they tried to explain what was going to happen to those who were unbaptized through no fault of their own, especially infants. The church has never really said 
that's not the case. But at the same time, you know, Pope John Paul II really kind of said, eh, we need to get away from this idea. You know, that, that I, this is because it's, it's a it's a theory. It's not, you know, it's, it's a, a theological musing that really took root. And that's where he talked more, focusing more on baptism of desire that, you know, if the child would have desired it, um, that he, um, he would be saved. So, and, and again, it all comes down to, for an infant, for someone who has never heard the gospel, God is not bound by the commands, the teachings that we have been given. We are. Right, he's a judge. He, well, he's the judge, and he's also the one who created us. So if he decides that an infant who is aborted or an infant who is born and dies a year, you know, an hour or a year later without baptism, he can decide that they can go to heaven through his divine love. But we can't say for certain that that's going to happen, you know, because we don't know. And we need to be very careful when we say that that we also recognize that God could, in his just love, his, ju his divine justice, say, no, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. There is something else for them. Not punishment, but not the fullness either. You know, so it, it, it's one of those things that people have struggled with for millennia, literally. Other questions? All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.